You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we will spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah at gmail.com. And, of course, I will answer as many as I can. Well, everyone, today is a special show. We are up to number 300. Mazel tov. Ah, if Cisco can say mazel tov, then I've been doing a good job over the last 300 shows. 300, by the way, is a fascinating number. The Talmud actually uses it um, for exaggeration purposes. In our case, it's not exaggeration. We really have done 300 shows. Wow, 300. If you do, well, if you do one a week, it takes forever, but now we do like two a week, so it's not so bad. Okay, Uh, before we get into the show, as always, to all my dedicated listeners, I know you love the show, and I need your help. To help the show spread, I need you to go to my homepage and hit that donate button. And a few levels of uh, giving will show up. And please donate. Please help. Please leave your name. And, of course, I'll give you a shout-out. You can ask me um, to pray for someone. You You can sponsor a show in memory of a loved one. Whatever works. Somebody needs a refuah shleima, a healing. Whatever works for you is all good. So, and in advance, I thank you. And Cisco, there's a an amazing echo. Do you hear it? Hello. All right. All right. So there's a okay. It's a real echo, but I guess we'll figure it out. That's why I'm talking slower. So we're talking about Tishabov. Tishabov is the ninth of of. It's a day of national mourning. And we asked in the last show, and I gave one answer. And now I'm going to ask the question again with a different answer. And that is, why are we crying? Why are we crying over a bunch of sticks and stones? Now, interesting. I, of course, am not the first one to ask this question. Oh, that is way better. No more echo. Much better. I don't know what you did. It's magic, Alan. Okay. So the Ramah quotes the following story. So this is taking place during the destruction of the first temple. So we need to know some of the players. You have the king of Babylonia. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. You have the great prophet Jeremiah. Now, by the way, you can't be a prophet unless you are a very, very, very smart person. If you're not a superstar, genius, smart person... God is not making you a, a prophet. So we're talking about superstar, major. And interesting, it seems, I guess we'll have to figure out historically if that works, but uh, Pluto um, was also there. Not Pluto from Disney. No, no. 
the great philosopher Pluto. So what happened was, so Nebuchadnezzar comes, he parks himself around the temple, takes a few years, breaks through the walls of Jerusalem, and burns down the temple. And he takes the, at least those in Jerusalem, but he takes the Jews out um, of Jerusalem and he's bringing them into exile into Babylonia where for some they're there forever. As even when the second temple was, was built, many, many, many Jews did not return. They stayed in Babylonia. I, I have a, a book, well, it wasn't my bathroom, but now it's made it to my office. Um, it, it talks about how in the Middle Eastern countries like Iraq and Iran, Jew, till, till the early 1900s, mid-1900s, there were basically Jews there since the time of the First Temple. So when we, when we were taken into exile, we stayed there a very, very long time. So on the way out, on the way to Babylonia, so Jeremiah was accompanying the Jewish people, and Pluto, not Pluto, Plato, I said Pluto, Pluto's a planet, not Pluto, Plato. I spelled it wrong. Anyways, no wonder I get confused with Disney. Plato, that's much better. Anyways, so Plato meets Jeremiah, and he says, I have two questions. We saw Jeremiah is crying. I have two questions for you. First of all, a sage like you, such a great person, should cry over a building? The building's in ruins. What are you crying over to pass for? You should know better than that. That's question number one. And, and the second question is that, um, okay, so why did I not write down the two questions? Let's figure this out. Right? And as first of all, why are you crying over a building? That's question number one. And question number two is why are you crying over the past? I wrote as one question, so therefore I got confused. But Plato had two questions. Question number one is, why are you crying over a building? It's just a building. And why are you crying over the past? So Jeremiah says to Plato, you know, you are a great philosopher. Why don't you ask me your best questions? So Plato, like any great philosopher, has his list of uh, earth-shattering questions and doesn't say how many he asked him in the story. And Plato asks the questions, and Jeremiah goes ahead and he answers every single question. <clears throat> So Plato, after he hears the answers from Jeremiah, he says, I cannot believe that a mortal could possibly answer these questions. So Jeremiah says, that's the answer to your first question. You want to know why I'm crying over sticks and stones? I'm not just crying over sticks and stones. I am crying over these stones that that's where I got all my knowledge from. All the knowledge I have that I was able to answer your earth-shattering questions, that's all um, because these stones were a building where God's presence was. And because God's presence was here, it soaked me up with tremendous knowledge to answer anything by, by recognizing God to my fullest ability. It gave me the ability and the brain to answer your questions. That's why I'm crying over sticks and stones. These are not just plain sticks and stones. However, your second question about why am I crying over the past, I can't answer that question, which seems a little strange. Like, it would seem to be a pretty easy answer to give. 
So Elio Lapian explains. He says, we, the Jewish people, we are not crying over the past. We are crying over the future, right? Because we know when we cry, God collects these tears and he puts them away. And when we need them, he pulls them out. And eventually they'll be used so that God will build the future temple. So there's a purpose to the tears. The tears are not really for the past. The purpose of the tears are for the future. So if that's such a simple answer, why didn't Jeremiah give that answer to Pluto? So he says, somebody like, I keep saying Pluto, somebody like Plato, somebody like Plato cannot fathom the concept of crying for the future. He understands crying, that he understands that people cry over the past. That he understands 100%. The idea that you're going to cry now and that will, in the future, cause, create, that God will build a second temple, a third temple in this case, but in that case, a second temple, that Plato doesn't know what to do with that. So therefore, Jeremiah knew that Plato couldn't handle the, the, um, the answer, so therefore he doesn't give the answer. Okay. But now if you think about it, nowadays, Jerusalem is beautiful. It's a city... You know, they build it with Jerusalem stone. You can't just build uh, anything. You have to have that special white stone. I guess it's usually white, at least where I uh, hung out when I was there. It, buildings, it's modern. You've got synagogues everywhere you turn. You've got children studying Torah wherever you go. The city is beautiful. It is a, it is a city soaked with, with people studying Torah, doing good deeds, praying all hours of the day and night. It's beautiful. So wh why are we crying? So the answer is, and it's something that we, we have to keep in mind, the temple, the Beis Hamikdash, is like our heart. So imagine a person goes, he exercises, and he's, he eats well, and he, he's not overweight, and he's strong, and he goes to his heart doctor, and, you know, he's looks great, all chiseled, and the doctor listens and he says, you know, you're, you're in good shape, right? Everything looks good. You look really healthy, but there's a problem with your heart. So it doesn't really matter what he looks like because inside, this person has a real problem. The heart is not working properly. It doesn't matter what everything else looks like. And that is the Jewish people. It's true on the outside. We do all the things we're supposed to do, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, uh, there's something wrong with our heart. We're missing the temple. The temple was our heart. As we say, our heart, our soul. If I have time, I'll get to a story to remind me. Um, I told you before when we started the show that the number 300 is talking about the temple. So I want to, we, we, we're talking about what we lost. I, I want to I discuss there were multiple miracles that took place all the time. And as I told you, the number 300 happens to get used as an exaggeration. It's our 300th show, so, uh, but there's an exaggeration. So two interesting exaggerations is there was a tree that Solomon planted. I'm sorry, that's not the tree. There was, a, there was an area where people would, would give donations of gold. And they put like little leaves or something and hang this gold on this, I don't know what it was some type of contraption, but it was like a way of donating to the temple. 
And when it had when they had to clean up all the gold, it took three hundred priests to clean up the gold. That's one example of three hundred. Second example of three hundred is the curtains. If they had to go into a, into to be purified in water, it took three hundred kohanim to get it in and out of the water. It was so humongous. Again, it's exaggeration. Okay, but let's get into some things which may be not so easy, but I think we can figure it out. Um, Ten of the daily miracles. They have to remember, um, the temple is not like the synagogues or, or, or temples you've been in, which are, you know, rows of chairs and maybe carpeting, maybe marble and walls and decorations and maybe paintings and Torah scrolls and, and pulpits. And it, the temple was used for sacrifices, daily sacrifices. You had the public daily sacrifices brought and anybody bringing their own sacrifice so that means you have a lot of slaughtered meat. You got blood. Don't take this the glory away, but you do. Yeah. There's blood. I'm sure there was water rinsing things. You have the skinned meats, meats getting burnt, meats being given to owners. Sometimes there's a backlog, so the meat's waiting around. So, I, I, you know, I personally have never experienced a slaughterhouse. I'm not sure how much my stomach would appreciate it. But there's that smell of this raw meat. So some people who are used to it probably don't mind. But it happens to be pregnant ladies don't do well with the smell of slaughtered meat. So miracle number one, and this qualifies as a miracle, is that no lady miscarried from the smell of the meat. That's number one. Now, and this we're gonna, the next one we're going to talk about, and my son asked me about this really, the temple wasn't a um, wasn't a um, like a mall where it's beautifully air conditioned in like today's weather, where you go inside, right? You come in from the heat or from the rain, and it's beautiful weather inside the building. This was an open building. Now this troubled my son. Why it's an open building? Wouldn't it be better if it had like a roof and stuff? And okay, it's irrelevant. But the fact is that. On a day like today, depending where you're living, temperatures in the mid-90s. Here was mid-90s yesterday. I know New York, I think, was mid-90s today. Um, it's hot. You got meat lying around. The meat doesn't all get burnt right away. The owners can't all get to the meat right away. There's certain pieces that have to go different areas. Things have to get rinsed out. And in such humongous heat, to never have meat ever spoil, I mean, things get left around. There's days with where there could be hundreds, thousands of sacrifices by holiday time, but the meat never spoiled. That's miracle number two. Now, those two, first two, okay, they're not as big as I imagined, but the third one, there were no flies. You know, my wife barbecues. She hasn't really let me barbecue. But you bring the chicken inside. If you leave the back door open or you open the window without a screen, there's going to be a dozen flies flying around the chicken. Forget being outside, in the kitchen. Like, oh, so now we got to start killing flies. You can't get them off the meat. So just imagine in the temple all this meat being slaughtered and, and being left around and rinsing and that, and that one fly. That one fly? It's amazing. I know it's hard to believe. Um, but interesting, as a, on a similar note, um, the great Ramesha Feinstein... Um, he passed away in 86. So he was the leading rabbi 
So he, during the summer, like many people, would be in the Catskill Mountains, and he would like to go outside to his little table, and he would study. And it happens to be where he was, if you've ever been to Catskill, certain camps, maybe many camps, you know, especially if it's wet and rainy, you get a lot of mosquitoes. You almost can't eat outside because you, you, you have your, your cup of tea with sugar, there's mosquitoes falling into it. A sweet cake, there's mosquitoes around it. And people say that you could be sitting across the table from him. He had his tea, he had his piece of cake, and even if you had a, a glass of tea and your glass got some bugs in it, his didn't. No bugs were anywhere near him. Almost like he had a force field around him. Because there's what to be said when a person is very holy, very spiritual, very special, very learned. So even the flies leave him alone. And that's what happened in the temple. Um, okay, that's three miracles. Fourth miracle. Um, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, he does all the work on Yom Kippur. No, we don't have others. I mean, we have uh, backups just in case. But the Kohen Gadol has to do all the work. Now, if a priest, or in this case, the Kohen Gadol, becomes tummy, becomes impure, and it's that hard, right? You know, there's a, a, a litany of things, long list of things that can make a person impure, and then you got to get a replacement. Miracle, God made sure he never, the Kohen Gadol never became impure tummy and Yom Kippur. Okay, now this next one is a fascinating one. Um, when it rained, you see, the temple was not protected. Interesting. There was no miracle that it didn't rain over the temple. If it's raining, you get wet. You bring your sacrifices. You've got to keep the fire going. Um, but it could rain in the temple. But the rain didn't put out the fire. As you have the fire on top of the, on top of the altar. And even when it rained, the fire did not, the rain did not put out the fire. Now, it's interesting, why is that the miracle? In other words, make it not rain. Right? That would be an amazing miracle. Right? It's raining everywhere, and there's this like, wall going around the temple, no rain. Why? So I believe the Rechaim says, Nevechaim, that that's the point. In other words, when we serve God, we don't only serve God when everything is perfect temperature is perfect, my chair is comfortable, my table's the right level, I have the perfect cup of coffee in front of me, I have my favorite Danish next to me, the, it's, there's no sun shining in my eyes, there's nobody bothering me. That's not how we serve God. We serve God as living people, and things are not perfect, and things happen, and you got to deal with it. So it rained in the temple. You gotta, you gotta serve God, even if it rains in the temple. But it'll take care of you, because the fire is not going out. So that's amazing. Okay. Next, you had the the altar. That same fire, the smoke went straight up. Now, um, it says in the high on, on Yom Kippur, or on I'm sorry on on Saris, it, it could look like a, a palm tree actually, and the top of it might bend in the wind to show what that year's rain is going to look like. But otherwise, it was a straight pillar that went up, and the wind did not cause that smoke to dissipate. And it doesn't mean there's no wind. There's wind. Similar to the rain. There's wind. But the wind is not causing anything, any of that smoke, to dissipate. Okay. 
we have um, certain sacrifices. The, it's called the Omer that's brought for the new to permit the new flour, the new grain to be eaten. We have the two loaves of bread on the Shavuot holiday. We have the showbread of Lechem Apanim that was uh, on the table in the in the temple. That was it was on the table for a week, and then it was then it was um, then it was eaten. Um, Nothing ever went wrong with it. It was always kosher. Now, I don't want to get too complicated what's called kosher. I don't mean there were no other ingredients, flour and water. But nothing happened that it that we had to replace it. Now, interesting, there's other miracles also, but we don't count those. For example, there's a miracle that the showbread stayed warm week long. We don't count that miracle because it's not noticeable. We, we want stuff that's very noticeable. Um... On the high holidays, and on Yom Kippur, it says that, I mean, the base of Mikdash was not that big. If you've ever seen the Temple Mount, it's not that big. You know, if you try to get thousands of people into that uh, building, they will be squashed. And they were. It says they stood, and, and, and they, they couldn't move. But when, it, when they heard God's name, they had to bow down. <laughs> you don't even have room to stand. You're almost floating in the air. You don't have to understand how you're going to bow down. The miracle was when it came time to bow down, all of a sudden there's room for everybody to bow down. Okay, that miracle you can see. That's whoa. That's a miracle. Um, the next two, interesting, are connected to Jerusalem, even though we count them in the ten daily miracles. One is sna- no snakes or scorpions bit anybody in Jerusalem. A safe place to be. Not to say there weren't snakes, not to say there weren't scorpions. There were snakes, there were scorpions. But they never killed anybody in Jerusalem. And the last one, and I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. The last one is no one ever said it's there's no room in Jerusalem. No one, you know, people are gonna come. It's not like there's hotels or anything. You're gonna you're gonna find people's house to sleep in and and you got to find places. they will put 10 beds in this room and five beds in this room. And you got to put people wherever you could. Remember, like on Passover, everybody's got to come. Like, where exactly are we supposed to have room for everybody that, when they come on Passover to bring their special sacrifices? No one ever said, in Jerusalem, there's no room, which is interesting. It's like, you know, some of us look at our children and say, it would be a miracle if this kid doesn't uh, complain in the next 10 minutes, right? We're used to people complaining. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's just a fact. We're, we're, we're used to listening to people complain. And still, in Jerusalem, with who knows how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, no one complained that they don't like the accommodations. And that, and that all went back to show the tremendous love that the Jewish people had for God and God had for them, and therefore God made it that no one felt it's an amazing miracle, right? That no one feels that that I'm not fitting over here. No one feels that way. So we've been talking about um, the ninth of Av. We've been talking about the temple was destroyed. And what we were trying to do today is just to go through a whole bunch of miracles that happen daily, which is all part of the spirituality of the temple, which we talked about is called our heart, that... That when you went, if there is if there's constant miracles going on, and you could see these miracles, 
right? There's constant miracles, and you could see these miracles taking place, then that means you could feel, you could feel all the spirituality that's flowing. And you can only imagine when you would come home. Just imagine you had a, uh, most of us, we go on vacations, and we hopefully had a beautiful, enjoyable vacation. And you come back and you say, oh, how was vacation? Oh, great, look, I have a whole bunch of great pictures over here. So how long, what's the staying power of that vacation? I don't know, you know, you, you, you feel satisfied, you're ready to go back to work. If you're a teacher like me, you're ready to go back to teach. But what's the staying power of it, right? Here, when they came back, and this is what we've been talking about for the last two shows, when they came back home, there was a staying power. They were rejuvenated. They, they were uplifted. There was that spirituality in them, and they were looking. As you didn't just take, I mean, you go on a vacation, so when you come home, there's not much you can do with the feeling you got from the vacation. The vacation is not going to make you into a better person, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better child, right? That's how vacation does you. It's just a break. Here, when they came back from the vacation, when they, I'm sorry, when they came back, from visiting the temple, so they felt like a new person. What can I do to increase my Torah study? What can I do to increase my charity? What can I do to increase my, uh, my kindness or how I take care of people, how I speak to people? You, you, it changed you as a person, and that is what we're crying about. So the music is playing. Hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to all the wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. And for those people pressing the button. Thank you to my wonderful production team. We have Cisco and Alan in the back. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next time, don't forget to think about it.